This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, we do not stand above your word, but we humbly come under your teachings and your truth. Today, as we open up Matthew 24 and next week on 25, uh, it speaks about end times that are hard to grapple at many layers. We pray, God, as we humbly examine your word carefully, that you will reveal your truth to us, that our hope may be strengthened, that our hands may go forth to do what you have called us to do. So be with us today. We pray your spirit will help us to engage with your word as we keep it open. Amen. Today will be um, the end times, part one, from Matthew 24, and next week will be on Matthew 25, the second part of it. But today, let us begin by asking this question. What comes to your mind when someone speaks about end times? What comes to your mind when someone or speaks about the end of the world? Or to put it another way, how... Or when will our world end? Well, if you're a moviegoer, and I know uh, Pastor Andrew is, there'll be no lack of images about the end of the world, isn't it? Movies like Armageddon, Deep Impact, 2012, and even various Marvel movies, where the world will end by a meteorite showers, by floods, perhaps by terrorists or even alien attacks, etc., But what about the Bible? What does the Bible say about the end of the world? Well, Matthew 24 is actually one of the very sustained passages that speaks on this topic. It's actually one of the most difficult passages in the Bible and especially uh, even more so in Matthew. There are great divisions on this passage and how it is to be understood. Um, It is an exciting passage at the same time to kind of help us to engage with what end times really means for a Christian. Now, let me give you first a few major views of Matthew 24 before we zoom in to the passage itself. Uh, one, one of the views is this, that some argue that it is all about the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Um, and other, others view that it is mainly about the future tribulations at a point where the world will actually end and Jesus comes and depends on how long he comes and so on and so forth. And of course, there are some who view that, well, it's kind of both between both the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple and also um, the, the journey from there on until Christ returns. So there are these three major views uh, about Matthew of course, there are still other variations which could be quite strong as well, such as um, others who point that Matthew 24 actually is about the death and resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. So as, as we look at Matthew 24, I'll just put it straight out to you first that you'll notice that I've kind of found it most persuasive, at least this point, that um, this passage is speaking about the events leading to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, as well as the principles of end times, till Christ comes back again. So so I'd like to just put it straight out to you first, uh, how I would try to look at it. So as you read the passage, I invite you to keep Matthew 24 open, 
as we look at it carefully, you may or may not fully agree with everything I've understood uh, about a passage. But nevertheless, though the, the interpretation of Matthew 24 can be challenging, the implications of how we are to respond is actually very clear. So I just want to put it out there for us. And we'll see the implication and instructions both in Matthew 24 as well as next week in Matthew 25. So now keep your Bible open as I invite you on this journey with me into Matthew 24 to see for yourself what Jesus is saying about the end times. In fact, if you have your bulletin, the outline of the passage is there for us as well. Now let me give us a brief recap. The good thing is because we are going through the whole of Matthew, I can give a brief recap of what's actually the context of Matthew 24. Matthew 24 falls into the final week of Jesus' time before He's being crucified. This is what we call the Passion Week. We are told that Jesus has really gone to the temple. He confronted the the religious leaders in the temple. So on one hand, the religious leaders, they have rejected Jesus. In fact, they are already in the midst of plotting murder and to put him on trial. But lastly, what actually happens is Jesus himself turns to the religious leaders and he pronounced judgment on them for rejecting God's king, in fact, for treason against God. So you have this confrontation. In fact, that was the last public teaching in the temple. And as we come to today, Matthew 24, after Jesus has pronounced His judgment even on Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I wish to protect you, but you do not want, and desolation comes to your house. Now in chapter 24, he leaves the temple, and he's going to teach his disciples privately. So this is where we picked up from Matthew 24. So look at verse 1 and verse 2 with me. As Jesus walks away from the temple, His disciples kind of look back at the beautiful grand temple. He calls Jesus' attention to the grandeur of the temple building. But Jesus turns to his disciples and he said this, verse 2, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. When the disciples look at the grand temple, the greatest building around, and he hears the word of Jesus, it must have been a great shock for the disciples because this temple is the grandest building they've ever seen. If you are tourists, this is that building that everyone points to, every Jew is proud of. It takes decades to build it. Is it really going to be destroyed? Moreover, the temple is actually what the center of the Jewish nation, the center of Jewish faith. It is the place where God's presence is amongst His people. So when Jesus says that it is going to be destroyed, it is a shocking news for them. Now they have been following Jesus for three and a half years, isn't it? And they have come to believe who Jesus is and they can accept Jesus' words. But as they hear that the temple is going to be destroyed, questions just exploded in their mind. And that's why it happens in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Uh, with me. As Jesus was sitting down on the Mount of Olives, a familiar place, which is why this place is com- this uh, passage is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Now the disciples came to Jesus privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I just want to pause here at verse 3 for a moment and I ask a question. How many questions? <laughs> Let me just... No, that's confusing. Let me just ask us to look at verse 3 and say, how many questions are there um, that the disciples are asking? How many questions are there that the disciples are asking? I heard three. Isn't there three? The first one, when will this, meaning the destruction of the temple, happen? That's the first question. Second, what will be the sign of Jesus' coming back, both as the king and as, as the judge? And the third question is, what will be the sign of the end of the world or the end of the age? They kind of have three questions there, said in one breath. But if we kind of just step back and look at the expectation or the understanding of Jewish disciples at the time with what they have understood, you know what, they're actually asking one consolidated event. To them, the Jewish disciples, the utter destruction of the temple is so great and so horrid, it can only mean that God is bringing judgment. And having believed that Jesus is the Messiah, it means that Jesus will come back at this point to bring judgment because he has just talked about the seven wolves, isn't it? And he'll be there to establish the kingdom and the world will come to an end. So the disciples, when they're asking these three questions, they're actually wanting to know when will all these things happen as one consolidated event and how will they recognize when this actually happens. In fact, this is very much how a Jew would think before Jesus' time. They'll think of end times as kind of just one event. It's not a two-stage event before Jesus. End times is kind of a one event where, Jesus, where God will come, the day of the Lord, isn't it? However, as often as Jesus has been, we'll start to recognize that Jesus doesn't simply answer questions, isn't it? When he speaks, he'll give more information than we could have expected to think about. And the disciples will soon learn that end time is not a once-off event. That is, destruction equals end of age equals Jesus' return. Instead, Jesus will reveal that it is a two-stage event with the death and resurrection of Jesus in a few days away. Uh, What is going to happen is that At his death and resurrection, Jesus will permanently replace the role of the temple. And the temple, in its destruction, will kind of mark the permanent closure of its role. And closely linked to death and resurrection and the destruction, that marks the beginning of the end times. And then, at some point, the completion of the end times will come with Jesus' return and his kingdom. And that actually marks the end of end times. So it has a beginning with the destruction of the temple and it ends with his return. So there are actually a two-stage event with a process and a principle in between for them. Or from another angle, if you look at Matthew 24, it's kind of also what some people call it, it's just a big term there called prothetic for shortening, if you can't remember that, it's perfectly fine. It, it basically means that there's a closer event, such as the destruction of the temple. It actually begins and it prepares us for a much bigger event 
that's going to be like that, but much bigger. There will be a judgment on Israel, but finally there will be a judgment of the world. So um, that is another angle as we look at how it is. In fact, this is this thing called prophetic foreshortening is kind of a very similar way that you do read it often in Old Testament. Imagine uh, if you remember the prophet Nathan, when he speaks to King David, out of you will come a descendant who will build the house of God and his kingdom will last forever. Guess what? Right after him, Solomon came, he built that magnificent temple of God and he became the king of, uh, of David's descendant. But it's only until at Matthew 1, we realize that, and at the end of Matthew, that Nathan's prophecy stretches further to actually Jesus, who will come and replace the, the temple, the house that Solomon built, and he will bring a kingdom that will actually last forever and beyond what any of the descendants of Solomon, uh, David has ever had. So, so that kind of uh, picture uh, is familiar in, in the Old Testament and especially in the prophetic books. So there we have it with a quick overview. We'll now dig into verse 4 to verse 35 as we look at the principles of end times from verse 4 to 14. The answer to temple destruction from verses 15 to 25. Further principles regarding end times from 26 to 28 and the answer to Jesus' return and the end of age from verse 29 to 21. And then we'll round out with how we should respond from verse 32 to 51. So the outline will be really helpful if you still have it in your bulletin and to keep your Bible open and try to engage with this to see uh, if that makes sense to you. So let's begin with the principle of end times from verse 4. To verse 14. Now, there are generally two things that happens during difficult times, such as war, major disasters, or famine. When, when a really difficult catastrophe comes, normally two things happen. First, people will look at it and they'll say, ah, the end of the world. Second, people will start to scramble and look. If anyone claims to be a savior, they'll go and cling on to that. Okay, and it, it happens throughout history. When a catastrophe comes, people either say this is the end of the world, or they will look for a hero who claims to be a savior and grab hold of him or her. We see this throughout history, and even in the times of the disciples leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, we'll see the same for the last 2,000 years, as some people will claim to be messiahs or even Jesus, and others will just stand hopelessly waiting for end times to come. But look at what Jesus actually says from verse 5 to verse 6 on the principles of end times. Look at verse 5 with me. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Wars will come. Rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. The end is still to come. And verse 7 and 8 again. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth 
pains. These events are the beginning of birth pains. In the years leading up to the eventual destruction of um, Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, there were repeated rumors of wars, of actual wars, of famines, of earthquakes. There was a Roman emperor by the name Caligula around AD 40. He tried to kind of erect a statue of himself in Jerusalem and it almost sparked a war. And then we read about severe famine in Jerusalem. You read it in Acts chapter 11 where it, and you read in the rest of the epistles that Paul is kind of gathering famine uh, relief for the Jerusalem Christians because the famine was massive. And if you're kind of a movie-goer or kind of a history person who likes to read, there's at least one major earthquake that happened, began in AD 61, and it totally destroyed the city of Pompeii in AD 63. Uh, you can find this in, in history, you can find it in movies as well. And eventually history tells us that the Jews did rebel against the Romans, and the temple and Jerusalem was destroyed. In AD 70. So Jesus has already warned that this will happen. But note the words in verse 6. Jesus says this is the beginning but not the end. The same goes for us. For the past 2,000 years we read newspaper, we watch TVs, we read about wars and famines and earthquakes. In fact, all those things we have seen in movies that cause the world to think this is the end of the world. Jesus says these are merely the beginning of birth pains. They actually are not the mark of the complete end of the world. It is not the end of birth pains. It's just the beginning of birth pains. There will be more to come before the perfect restoration. So while Jesus is kind of preparing his followers for what is to come, the destruction in 70 AD, He's also preempting his followers that they and we are actually not to view end times the way that the world views it. The world will think end times wherever catastrophe comes. Jesus says that is not the way you should think about end times. Because that's the natural way most of us would think, right? When something World War III, that's the end times. Jesus says these things will happen, but that is not the end. In fact, he adds on, isn't it, that let's not be deceived when false messiahs comes and make false claims and promises. So Jesus' reply actually suggests to his disciples that as they experience the events leading up to the destruction of the temple, they also should not think it is the return of Christ and the end of age. It is but the beginning of the end. There's a second principle that goes on. Follow with me from verse 9 to 12. Jesus says his followers are to recognize that this is what's going to happen externally. There'll be lawlessness, there'll be opposition, there'll be tests of faith. The followers of Jesus need to be prepared for persecution, for hatred, even death. That's externally. But internally, the true followers must not be surprised if they're professing followers or other Christians who actually turn out to turn away from Jesus, to betray and even hate God's people. In fact, false prophets will come out from within the church. And that's true, isn't it? We read in, in, in the Gospel, even before AD 70, we have the murder of the Apostle James. 
the stoning of the deacon Stephen, the close shave for Apostle Peter. We read the letters and we see the warnings of false teachers and false teachings even coming out from amongst their own. All this happened before the destruction of AD 70 and guess what? They continue to happen even today, isn't it? That this will happen. But the point that Jesus really want to focus on is actually verse 13. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> His point is actually this, verse 13. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. <clears throat> what is important is not finding out the day or the hour of Jesus' return, but the need to actually stand firm when all these things are happening. Now, there's the third principle about the end times, is that it will come, not by disasters, not by suffering, but it will come by the completion of the gospel work. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this will be the task that Jesus will soon assign to his disciples by the time we finish Matthew in his last chapter. This will also be the story of the book of Acts, bringing the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the known world at the time. And even the same for us, as the gospel reaches to the rest of the unknown world in our time. This is a mission Jesus uh, has given and has assigned before he will return. So there we have it. Even as Jesus hears the disciples kind of three questions about this one event, he doesn't answer them straight away. He kind of prepares the principle of what end times look like. And only then does Jesus move in to answer the first question, which is when and how the destruction of the temple will occur, beginning verse 15. And this is when Jesus speaks to his disciples to their first question about the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 15 onwards with me. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Now how does Jesus answer the question about destruction of the temple? He brings them to a prophecy that Daniel quotes and then he says let the readers understand because it is an event that the readers of Jesus time do understand the abomination that causes desolation of the holy place let me just read to you what Daniel says and let me explain further what actually has happened before Jesus' time so let me read to us Daniel chapter 9 verses 26 to 27 the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like flood. War will continue until the end. The desolation that have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many of one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end this decree is poured out on him. This is the prophecy of Daniel, centuries before Jesus' time. And many scholars actually believe that the, this prophecy of Daniel has already been fulfilled 200 years before the time of Jesus. 
there was a king called Antichus, Epiphanes IV. He kind of ruled the Palestinian area 200 years before Jesus' time, about 175 BC to 64 BC. And Antichus, he showed great contempt and disgust of the Jewish people, so much so that the, the Israelites or the Jews, they kind of rebelled against Antichus. And history says that eventually Antichus was so angry with the Jews, his army stormed into the temple. They stopped the sacrifice. He built the statue of Zeus in it. And it was said that he even made sacrifice of pigs in the temple of God. So for the Jews in Jesus' time, they knew this event. And when you say the prophecy of Daniel, the abomination that de- causes desolation in the holy place, which is the temple, they, they think of this event that happened under King Antichus Epiphany IV. So now Jesus says to his disciples in verse 15, Understand this, when you see this same event happening again, when foreign power coming in to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, Jesus says, this is what you must do. And here are the instructions. Verse 16, the people in Judea, they are to flee. Verse 17, 18, do not turn back to get anything. It's too urgent. Verse 19, it will be a very dreadful day. This destruction will happen. So verse 20, pray that it will not be in winter or Sabbath. Then verse 21, it will be worse than the previous event under King Antichus Epiphany the fourth. And you'll never have any more because there won't be any more temple for such a thing to happen. And verse 21, Jesus goes on, for the sake of the elect, God will actually shorten the duration or no one would survive. And then coming back to the principles of end times, that great distress in that time, people, or there will be people who claim to be messiahs, but you must not go after them, for they are deceivers. And with that, Jesus rounds up his first answer with verse 25. See, I have told you ahead of time. Now, as you kind of just stare at that, that paragraph there, Think of it carefully. Jesus must literally be answering the question of destruction of the temple from verse 15 to 25. Otherwise, it's actually pointless for Jesus to kind of warn them to flee to the mountain or not to turn back and get a possession or for them to pray or that God will shorten the event. Because what difference will it make if this is actually the end times, end end of times? Does it matter if you flee? Does it matter if you're pregnant? doesn't matter if it's winter, doesn't matter if it's shortened. Because there's nothing left, isn't it? doesn't matter if you go back and get your cloak. But if it's not the end, end times where Jesus returned, but the destruction, these instructions are crucial for survival of the Christians. In fact, according to the first century historian Josephus, he describes the walled city of Jerusalem. It was completely leveled as did the temple during 70 AD. And just... Sometime after him, actually, another important historian by the name Eusebius in the 3rd, 4th century, uh, he records that he says, actually the first hearers of Jesus' time, 
did understand this passage. They did heed the warning of Jesus. And Eusebius recorded that the Christians in Jesus in Jerusalem, when this desolation happens, they actually moved to a town called Pella, further away from Jerusalem. Well, these are according to historians in, in the 3rd and 4th century. So there we have it. From verse 4 to 14, it says the principle of end times, which is still relevant to us. Verses 15 to 25 is the actual warning for the generation in Jesus' time regarding the destruction of the temple. And speaking of false Messiah, Jesus further elaborates in verse 26 to 28. So let me read that for us and um, look at it with me. Verse 26. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner room, do not believe. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So to clarify the disciples' understanding of end times, which involves the return of the Messiah, Jesus says, Do not be deceived, for when He, Himself, the Son of Man, returns, you will no longer be in secret. Because whether you are a Christian or you are not a Christian, when He returns, everyone sees it. It's as clear and as striking as a lightning from east to west. It doesn't matter if you are Christian or not, everyone will see His return. And then Jesus answers the second part, of the disciples' question on his return and the end of age when he continues from verse 29 to 31. Let me read this slowly for us Um, again. Verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its lights, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heavens to the other. Now the most difficult part from verses 4 to 31 is actually that one word, immediately in verse 29. In fact, there's no one perfect reading of this word immediately in verse 29. You know, some have argued that this immediately speaks about the temple destruction. That's why there's that kind of, there's one aspect of reading. Some, because of this word, explains that actually the whole prophecy is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Still others simply kind of leave out any explanation for this connecting word. It's actually really hard to kind of um, work on this word immediately. And I, I don't have a 100% convincing reading of this either. Uh, but here's my humble attempt um, and see if you can uh, agree with me. I think that perhaps the phrase, immediately after the distress of those days, does not mean that the end will happen immediately after AD 70. Because after all, we are already in AD 2017, isn't it? But rather, it's speaking about the sequence of events. Meaning once the Jerusalem 
and the temple falls, Jesus can return any time. There's no more hindrance. So it's, it's not a kind of a X and Y axis um, view of time. I think I have a picture of the X and Y axis um, somewhere on the PowerPoint. My X and Y axis. I don't think that immediately is pointing to X and Y axis where you look at the beginning of end times in AD 40, kind of, and then immediately say, okay, it's going to be one second, one day, or one moment before Jesus returns. Rather, it's kind of a frontal view where your eyes is here when you're looking, where the last mountain goes down, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, there's nothing else hindering it. You, you can't see the distance because you're looking at the mountain this way, but it is the next sequence of event. After the temple is destroyed, immediately that is the next thing left. There's no other things to look for that is uh, crucial. But you come in, and this is also in line with verse 14, that it will happen when God deems that the gospel work has accomplished. Because it is God who will decide when his gospel work has reached the world. So now as we look again at verses 29 to 30, let me then explain this part for us. These are familiar end times and judgment languages actually found in the Old Testament, including Joel chapter 2. Let me read to you Joel chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. I put it on the screen. And notice the similarities of that. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Before them, the earth shakes, the heaven trembles, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? We're going to look at uh, the description in Joel 2. This description is meant to paint the horror of having to face God as your enemy. Even the earth, the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, they will give way at the appearance of God coming in judgment. Nothing is going to stand there and kind of try to shine the light because that glorious uh, judge has arrived. So Joel 2 puts it this way, right? When he says all these things are darkened, the day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? So as now we come to, come back to, Matthew 24, the declaration of the darkened sun, the lightless moon, the fallen stars, the shaken heavenly bodies, reveal that it will be a terrible moment for those who are not expecting His return. Jesus' glorious return will be a dreadful revelation of the consequence of sin in the world. No one can endure it. In fact, the judgment day It's so frightening, Jesus goes on in verse 30, that all peoples on the earth will mourn. But if you carry on, it says, yet for those who place their home in Jesus, the dreadful day will actually turn out to be a day of deliverance, which is where verse 31 comes in. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Those who reject God, those who usurp, the power and the glory of God, like the Pharisees back in Matthew 23 last week, those who persecute God's followers, as kind of we read earlier on in verse 9, 
this will be a dreadful day and they will not be able to endure. However, for those who stand firm, as we've kind of mentioned in verse 13, through the end times, they will be the ones that are saved. So there you have it. After answering both the first question and the second question, Jesus then gives further instructions to his disciples. And the instructions is this, that his disciples need discernment. So there, using his favorite tree to illustrate Jesus in verse 32, says this, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Sounds familiar? We've seen the fig tree earlier on. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. The Jews recognize the coming of summer based on the twigs and the leaves of fig trees. Because when the twigs kind of get tender and leaves come out, they know that, well, summer has not arrived, but it is very near. Summer has not arrived, but it is very near. So in the same manner, verse 33, when you see all these things, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. When the disciples of Jesus, they witness the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, and the, princ- the principles of end times just happening, they are to know that the return of Jesus is near. In fact, it's right at the door. So like the word immediately here, the nearness is not counting seconds or predicting kind of date. Rather, it is the next sequence of event. Just as the, the twigs are tender and the leaves come out, the next event that has to come is summer. So when you see all these things that have happened in your generation, there's nothing besides the return of Christ. There's, there's nothing else that stands in His way. He is near. In fact, Jesus cannot mean that the disciples will actually know the exact date of his return, right? Because Jesus goes on in verse 36. Look at verse 36. He says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the point that Jesus brings out is this, Know that sequentially, it is near. It can be any time after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but what? Guess what? Don't bother to guess the actual day or hour because not even the angels, not even the Son of Man himself knows because only the fathers know. Know that sequentially is near. That's the next thing happened. But don't bother to guess the time and the day because even the heavens do not know. And this is a lesson we have not learned for the last 2,000 years. Many have predicted Christ's return for the last 2,000 years and they have all been proven false. People actually predicted that Jesus is going to return at 8,500. They used the measurement of Noah's Ark. I have no idea how they do it. They they predicted Jesus coming at 580. It didn't happen. Many, including the Pope Sylvester II, predicted Jesus would return in the year 1,000, the millennium. When he didn't, they kind of add 33 more years in case... His birth dates are kind of missed out. And he didn't come as well. Charles Russell, the founding president of the current Watchtower, the founding president of what is now called the Watchtower of the Jehovah Witness, he calculated Christ's return, second, return, second coming to be 1874. 
It didn't come. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, prophesied that Jesus would return around 1890-91. He didn't come back. But we should expect that, isn't it? Jesus made it clear that the exact day or hour is not ours to predict. In fact, it should not be our focus, for His return will be like the days of Noah, as sudden and unexpected as the arrival of the flood. Isn't it? So, as we kind of pause here and just think at all that we have journeyed through, why does Jesus, or why did Jesus answer His disciples the way that He has up to this point? I think there are at least a few reasons. First of all, for His disciples regarding the temple destruction, it was actually out of mercy. He's actually not just telling them, He actually gave them instructions for them to know how to handle it. And for us and the rest of all generations, He sets the principles of end times so that we'll not think of end times like the way the world thinks. The moment there's a war, so the end times is coming. The, the moment there is something happened, they start grabbing for another Savior. Jesus gives the principles so that we will not end up in that because that's how the world functions. And He wants His followers, what He really wants us is to be ready. To be ready for his return rather than to predict when is he returning. So with that, Matthew 24 ends with verses 42 to 51, which are instructions for all believers. So let us read, uh, in fact, let me read verse 42 to 44 as you look at it in your Bible. Jesus said this, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus states this very clearly. Do not expect to know the date or hour of his return, but what really matters is that we are watchful and we are living in readiness. My favorite um, theologian called Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this in his resolution, point three. He says this to himself, Resolve never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He wrote this to himself. He said this, Resolve never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Now the question comes back to us, isn't it? How are you and I living at this moment? Are we kind of overwhelmed by the cares of the world? Do we live as if Jesus is not really going to come back very soon? Do we think end times, by the way we read newspaper and as the world kind of speaks about end times, and so they will suggest and come out with their own messiahs, are we drawn to those supposedly secrets that some people claim wherever there's an end times and they'll come with some secrets and we are drawn to those secrets that the rest do not know. Or do we sometimes think that we really want to leave for Jesus but maybe a few more years? Because probably He was not going to come so soon. Um, the world has not been preached or whatever ideas we come up with. Or are there times where we just think that we have just a bit more time to repent before He returns? How are you and I actually living 
at this very moment. Jesus' point is this. We would not know the exact day or the exact hour of His return, but that should never bother His people. What we should be concerned if we are His people is that we are watchful and we are living ready at any time. There's a theologian by the name Azak, A.W. Tozen. He puts it this way. I thought it was very, very well placed. He said this, When he returns, it's not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. Let me say that again. When he returns, it's not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. How are you and I living at this very moment? With that, I'll just bring an end to Jesus' parable of two servants from verse 45 to 51. Jesus brings his parable in on two servants. These two servants, they both knew their master is away. They both know that he will return. Both these servants are entrusted with responsibilities. The first servant... He's always ready when his master, for his master's return. He obviously loves his master and is busy with his master's work that's been entrusted to him. He's watchful. He doesn't analyze too hard in, in his time when the master will return because he probably doesn't have that much time. No, he, he can't be predicted anyway, so why bother? And you know what? Actually, it really doesn't matter how sudden the master returns because whenever the master returns, he will find that this servant is wise and faithful. But there's another servant, the second one. He looks around, he kind of analyzes for himself, verse 48. My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. Jesus says, this servant, he will not be ready to give an account when the master suddenly appears. You know, perhaps this servant lives a sinful lifestyle with some sin still hanging around. He says, you know, I'll, I'll repent of it uh, before the master comes back. I'll clean up my act before the master comes back. But Jesus says, he will not be ready. Because when the master comes, he will not be ready. He'll be found guilty of wickedness when the master appears. Dear friends, are we ready for Jesus' returns Tozen says when he, ret- when he returns, it's not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. Next week we will look at Matthew 25 as the implications and more instructions and parables are given regarding his return. But I think there is a huge um, implication already given to us even in today's chapter in Matthew 24. That are we ready for his return. Let's pray and then we'll have a time of QA on this chapter. Oh Father, we thank you for Jesus telling us how we should be prepared, how we should not look the way the world looks, be frightened whenever there's disasters, thinking it's end times, and catching hold of anyone who claims to have salvation. But Jesus has already warned us that. Both will not happen His way. We have to look because when Christ returns, everyone will see Him.
But Father, we pray that you help us to be prepared. To be prepared externally when we face suffering, persecution, internally not to be surprised when betrayal, rejection and false teachings appear. But help us to stand firm. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.